Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter for the Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover Romans 5 verses 12 through 21. Our context is this, Paul in chapter 4, the previous chapter, has talked all about how Abraham was justified by faith, and Abraham is the father of both Gentiles and Jews who are also justified by faith, and he, at the end of chapter 3, took up the topic of justification by faith, and before that he had gone to great lengths to show that everybody in the world has fallen short of the glory of God and is full of sin and needs to be justified. Now, in the first 11 verses of chapter 5, our immediate context, Paul gave the great benefits of being justified by faith, peace, access by faith into the throne room of God, grace, joy and suffering, endurance, character, hope, God's love, being saved from the wrath of God in reconciliation with God. And so now we are prepared to start with verse 12 in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. The therefore flags an explanation of the previous paragraph. Now, I told you the first part of Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, had to do with the benefits of justification. But also in that passage, there's a statement that shows that our justification, our salvation, is only possible because of the substitutionary death of one man, Christ. He died for us so we wouldn't have to die. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. So he died for us. Now, the next section, verses 12 through 21, or this section, verses 12 through 21 of Romans 5, explains how such a substitute was possible. How did Christ die for the ungodly? So that the ungodly could nevertheless live, even though they didn't deserve to live. How does this happen? How can one man Jesus serve as a propitiation for all the other people in the universe? In the, excuse me, in the world. So that's what we're doing here. Paul says in verse 12, Romans 5, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam when he ate the fruit, and death came through that sin. Death came to Adam. And once Adam was dead, in this way death spread to all men, he passed on that death to all of his offspring. And he said, sin entered, through the, wor- entered the world through one man, dot, 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 because all sinned. Not only did Adam sin, but also all of his descendants sinned. Now the reason they sinned, was because they inherited their sin nature from Adam. But nonetheless, they also actually did sin, and therefore, everywhere in the world is sin and death. What kind of death? Both physical and spiritual death. Spiritual death begins when the soul is separated from the body and continues throughout eternity, assuming the spirit is separated from God. The word thanatos, death, includes physical death and wretchedness in the lower world, as Thayer says. Spiritual death is not the cessation of the soul's existence. So physical death, and then that's hard to define too legally now because of all the equipment they've got to keep us keep our bodies working. But I guess flat brainwave, brainwave I think is the way to define it now, not necessarily the heart stopping. But we kind of know what physical death is. But remember, spiritual death is our permanent separation of the soul from God. When Christians physically die, they do not spiritually die because their spirit immediately goes to be in the presence of Jesus. Let's look at some early scriptures about death. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, that's Adam, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, Adam died, but did he physically die when he ate that fruit? No, he didn't physically die. That's the only kind of death that Moses is talking about here in Genesis 2. The only, the only death that he could be talking about is spiritual death. 
Romans 1.32, Paul says this, Although they know full well God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. That's talking about evil Gentiles. And then Paul, and, and when Paul, is, what Paul is talking about when he says those who practice such things deserve to die, he's talking about spiritual death. And, and well, he might secondarily be talking about physical death. He's mainly talking about spiritual death. And who's he referring to? People who do what things? Who practice such things? Practice what things? Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, hating God, insolence, haughtiness, boasting, inventing evil, disobeying parents, folly, faithfulness. Heartlessness, ruthlessness, you know, the garden variety kind of sins that people do. And the result of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. In fact, that's, Paul says that explicitly in the next chapter, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That verse contrasts his wages, something you work for, you work to die. You work by committing sin. But you can't work to get eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's got to be given to you. And that's why it's called a gift, a gift of God. Now notice Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, this is in verse 12, Romans 5, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. Death spread to all men because all sinned. That's why we, everybody dies, is because everybody sinned. And the wages of sin is death. So this is how the causation runs. Adam sins. That causes all men after him to sin because they inherit his corrupt human nature. And then, because all of Adam's descendants inherit his corrupt human nature, this causes death for all men. So Adam set in motion a chain reaction of sin. And as my friend Steve Atkinson so poetically puts it, Adam polluted the river of human life, and all who drink from it will be infected. Now, not in my version that I'm using here, the Holman Christian Study Bible, but in the NIV, New International Version, and the English Standard Version, ESV, there's a dash after this verse. So it reads this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death spread to all men because all sinned, dash. And then verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are an interlude, a parenthesis, if you will. And then Paul takes the thought back up and finishes his thought in verse 18. That would be, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown, I think other people Take it that way too. Let's read Romans 5, 18 and 19. So then, well, let, let me read it together, leaving out the middle verses here. We're going to go from verse 12 to 18 and 19. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 18. So then, as though one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification for everyone. But just as through one man's disobedience the many will be made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, by the time we get to these two verses, it'll be obvious what Paul is talking about here. Adam sinned. He passes death to everybody in the human race because of those sins. And now we've got a bunch of people with sins, but then Jesus dies on the cross, and he gives a gift to those, the, the, the portion of the many sinners that are in the world who believe in him, and then there's life, and there's many people brought to life. Now, notice it's all sinned. Now, there's a lot of people around saying, well, I'm a good man. I take care of my family. I don't cheat on my wife. I pay my taxes. I care about, I give money to the local charities, and I'm just a good old boy. I don't care how good you are civically. You're a sinner if you're not saved because all sinned, even the little tiniest. If you, if you don't pay enough attention to God, you're sinning. 
if you just shut him out of your life and live your life for yourself, for the applause of men, with all for all your goodness. Or even if you don't do it for the applause of men, but you just decide to be good for your sake. Well, then you're doing it for your sake. You're not doing it for God's sake, and you've sinned. Everybody has sinned. Any sin, no matter how small, deserves capital punishment, because it sins very serious to God, a lot more serious than, than we take it. Now, when did all men sin? Well, option number one, all sinned after Adam in their lifetimes. Well, that's fine, of course. That's what Paul's talking about, but there's a problem. Infants, because they don't have time to sin. They, they're not old enough to sin yet. So, what we have to say is that people who are morally responsible sin with their acts as well as their nature. They are born with a corrupt, sinful nature, and then they do acts of sin. And then infants who haven't had time to do acts of sin are nonetheless born with a corrupt nature. And so that means that all sin in Adam, with Adam, when Adam sinned. That's called original sin. The sin originates in Adam, and it passes down. The nature of sin passes down to all of Adam's descendants, which includes you and me. Now, I'm not going to get into the problem of infant salvation. That is a bodacious theological discussion. It turns out that most people believe that infants are saved automatically, and then they reach a so-called age of accountability. I suggest that that doctrine has a lot of problems with it, but it's such an emotional thing. People get all upset. It's really funny. Calvinists and Arminians will debate each other up, down, and sideways about soteriological issues, but... They agree on that, that babies have saved before the age of accountability. At least current-day Calvinists do. But at any rate, we won't get into that. Let's talk about how descendants can be in their ancestors. How I, Dan Trotter, as a descendant of Adam, can be in Adam and therefore guilty for Adam's sin. Hebrews 7, 9 through 10. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives tenths, has paid tenths through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor, within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, that's a little bit complicated, so let's remember that Abraham was, what, roughly mid-20th century B.C., and Levi was, was after Jacob, and Jacob was after Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham. So you're talking, what, two or three generations later? So Levi, of course, was the, the tribal patriarch who received tents legally from the Mosaic Law when it was set up in the mid-15th century B.C., and, and he received tents in order for support, in order to do the work in the temple, the Levites did. So he received tents, and what the author of Hebrews is trying to show that those who receive tents aren't, excuse me, those who pay tents are better than those who receive tents. Now, a Jew would look at that and say, well, Levi's receiving tents, so therefore he's honored, therefore he's a big shot. But no, Levi actually paid tents because his ancestor, he was in his ancestor Abraham's loins, one translation, translation puts it. He's put in Abraham's loins. He's in his ancestor's loins. So when Abraham paid tents to Melchizedek, Melchizedek being a type of Christ that was some king that didn't have an ancestor, so he became, he didn't have a genealogy, so he became a type of Christ. So Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek. Levi's in Abraham. Therefore, Levi is also paying tithes. So therefore, he ain't such. He, he represents the law, and the law is not greater than Christ. And that's the main point of that verse. But the point I'm trying to make about, trying to point out here, is that Levi was in his father's loins. Likewise, we are in Adam's loins. We are in Adam. We all sinned when Adam sinned. We are guilty for Adam's sin as well as our own, because Adam is our federal head, as the theologians like to put it. Individualistic modern people find that hard to take. They say, how can we suffer for what Adam did? Let me tell you something, folks. A lot of people suffer for what other people do. 
How about the kid that's born and his parent, his mother's a cocaine addict and fills him full of coke? He suffers for what his mother did. That's just the way life is. And if you want to say, well, it's not just not fair, it's not fair. I inherited Adam's sin and I just couldn't help but sin because I inherited Adam's sin. Well, first of all, if it's not fair that you receive deserve Adam's sin, well, it ain't. It's also not true that you deserve Christ's righteousness, and you can accept Christ just like anybody else can to get rid of that sin that you think you so unfairly inherited. And let me ask you another thing: If you were in the garden instead of Adam, would you have done anything differently? Probably not. Steve Atkinson put put it. And I tell you another another point to make here is that we. Even though we are in, inherit a corrupt nature from Adam that impels us to sin, we still voluntarily sin. That no, you know, nobody forces us to sin, to sin. Our human nature, it leaves us inclined to sin, but it doesn't force us to sin. But we voluntarily do it, and therefore we have to take the punishment for it. Now, all, there's a lot of theology in here, but when did all men sin? I would say in that uh, period since Adam People sin because of their nature that they inherit from Adam, and they sin because of the acts they do. They sin by nature, and they sin by acts. There's an exception for infants infants because they're too young to do any acts, so they sin by their, na- by their nature. So now let's go to Romans 5.13. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Now, I've always found this to be one of the most puzzling verses in the Scripture. I'm going to try to explain it to where it makes sense. First of all, sin was in the world before the law. Now, why did Paul say that? As the Haldane Commentary on Romans says, this verse and the following verse is put in here in vindication of the assertion that all have sinned. So the point of this verse is to prove that everybody sinned. The last three words of verse 12 say, because all sinned. Let me read that again. Verse 12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and that this way death spread to all men because all sinned. Somebody could say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got death going all over the world because all sin, but how can you blame people for sinning when they didn't have the law? The law wasn't given until Moses' time. So from Adam to Moses, there was no law. And when there's no law, sin is not charged to somebody's account. So therefore, you can't say that everybody sinned because there was no law saying that they sinned. So Paul says this. This is the way he reasoned to reasons to prove that there was indeed sin before Moses. First of all, he says, look, death exists, or he assumes that death exists. Everybody knows that. And since death exists, sin exists. Why? Because the effects, the wages of sin is death, the effects of sin is death. So we know that death exists, and since death exists, there must be sin. And now the interesting part of his reasoning here is, since sin exists, then law must exist too, because sin is not charged to a person's account when there's no law. So therefore, there must be law between Adam and Moses. Now, again, he's trying to argue against a Jew who might say, how can you say that people sinning between Adam and Moses? The Mosaic law didn't exist. And Paul is saying, oh, yes, there's law. There's obviously sin and death. You can't deny that, Jewish objector. But when you say there's no law, you're wrong. Because sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law, but sin is charged to a person's account. Therefore, there must be law. Now, that word charge means imputed to put to account so as to bring penalty. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Again, that's the same idea. You, you don't have an imputation of transgression unless there's a law telling the sinner that he's done something wrong, telling the lawbreaker, the transgressor, that he's done something wrong. But Paul's not trying to say there was no law between Adam and Moses. He's trying to say since there is law, since there has to be law between Adam and Moses because people are dying. And 
that people are dying because of their sin, and therefore sin is being practiced between Adam and Moses. Therefore, there has to be a law somewhere telling them that there is sin. So the next question you ask is, well, where is that law? Well, there's always been law between Adam and Moses. I have a great quote here. Unfortunately, I forgot to write where the quote was from that says this, you only have to read the book of Genesis to know that there were laws in the world before Moses. See Genesis chapter 9. Sodom and Gomorrah, chapter 9 is about capital punishment. Sodom and Gomorrah were buried for breaking some laws. Genesis 13, 13, Genesis 18, 20. I'm going to read you these verses in a minute. Noah's flood was sent because people were breaking laws. Man has never been without law. All right, well, let's look at some, some law that's between Adam and Moses. Genesis 9, 5. And for your, Moses is referring to Noah and his sons. Actually, this is God speaking. And for your... Noah and his sons, lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. That's capital punishment. So if God is requiring a reckoning, a charging, that means God, man's done something wrong. Genesis 13, 13, and if he's done something wrong, that must have been a law that he transgressed. Genesis 13, 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the law. Against the Lord, excuse me. If there were no law, how could sin be imputed against these sinners? God calls them sinners, but if there's no law, how can he call them a sinner? Whereas there is no law, there's no imputation of law. There's no imputation of sin. Genesis 13:20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. Well, God says, your sin is grave. Well, how can he say their sin is grave unless there was some law that they were transgressing that would tell them, tell them that their sin is grave? Now, having explained what Paul meant by that by that enigmatic phrase, sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. I must say there's another interpretation here, which I do not agree with. And that interpretation is held by the NIV Study Bible, Steve Atkinson and Adam Clark. This position says is really exactly the opposite of what I've just, I've just said. I just said there had to be sin in that period between Adam and Moses because there was sin and death. There had to be law between Adam and Moses because there was sin and death. Therefore, you had sin, and sin doesn't exist without the law pointing out the sin. But this position, the NIV Study Bible, Ackerson's and Adam Clark's position is, sin is not charged to a person's account because there was no law between Adam and Moses, but there was nevertheless death. Well, if there's no law causing the death, no law which produces sin, which produces death between Adam and Moses, therefore all that sin and death that happened between Adam and Moses had to come from Adam's original sin when he disobeyed the commandments of the Lord. Well, the problem with that view is that I just quoted you commandments between Adam and Moses that were not in the Mosaic law, that were not in the Garden of Eden with Adam, but were in that period between Adam and Moses. So there was law, and there, so there was transgression, there was sin. There was sin, there was death, and there was law. So I like my interpretation better, the idea that since there's death between Adam and Moses, there has to be sin between Adam and Moses. And since there's sin between Adam and Moses, there has to be law between Adam and Moses. And God did that by his revelation to Noah and whoever else he revealed himself to. And that explains why Paul says sin is not charged to a person's account when there's no law, because he's saying there has to be a law because there is sin. Well, we'll leave that thorny problem here. And we'll go to Romans 5.14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a prototype of the coming one. 
death reigned from Adam to Moses. We know that. I mean, just look at history and you know that. Even over those who do not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Now, you know, either sin reigned between Adam and Moses because people were breaking God's revealed law. Oh, I didn't mention the law of conscience. Every Gentile's got the law written on his heart of conscience, so you're breaking that between Adam and Moses. So there's law between Adam and Moses, in my humble opinion. I mean, I, I think that's the correct way to read that verse. And so since you got law, you got death reigning from Adam to Moses, as Paul says in Romans 5.14, even over those who do not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Now, what does that mean, sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression? Here's some options. They didn't sin against a commandment like Adam did. Adam sinned against a commandment, and these other guys sinned against, didn't sin against a commandment. Well, the problem with that is they did sin against commandments. You should, you're not supposed to kill people, Genesis 9. You're not supposed to have sexual immorality, as in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it was revealed. They, they knew what was right or wrong. If they didn't have a direct revelation from God about it, it was written on their hearts, the natural law. So that's not a good option, saying that Adam didn't, saying that people between Adam and Moses didn't violate a commandment like Adam did, and there's your difference. No, we need to look at another way that Adam's sin was not like the, it was not in the likeness of other people's sins. Other people between Adam and Moses, option number two here, other people beside, between Adam and Moses sinned against commandments like Adam did, but they were different commandments. Adam was told not to eat the fruit, and people in Genesis 9 were told not to kill people. Different commandments. Option number three, Adam had positive commandments from God, but the rest of mankind between Adam and Moses had only the law of nature written on their hearts. Option number four, Adam actually sinned, but people from Adam to Moses only sinned by imputation, by having the sin charged to the account because of what Adam did, and Adam was their federal head. So they sinned by imputation, imputation not by acts. Barnes denies that, and I, I don't believe that's true either, because I believe we sin by imputation as well as, by actions as well as imputation. Option number five, Adam was an adult, but those Paul contemplating here were infants. In other words, death reigned over from Adam to Moses, even those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. That would be infants who didn't sin the way Adam did, because Adam was an adult and infants aren't. Augustine came up with that idea. Barnes denies it. John Calvin denies it. I don't think it's right. What do I think it means? I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. But I do know that Adam sinned, and people from Adam to Moses sinned, and that's all that matters to me, even though Adam sins different in some way than everybody else's sin. We go to Romans 5.15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? The gift is not like the trespass. What's the difference between the gift and the trespass? The gift brings life. The trespass brings death. That's the main difference. It's a huge difference. For if by one man's trespass the many died... The many are the same as all men in verse 12 that we just read. Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men, because all sinned. So in Romans 5:15, the many died. In Romans 5:12, all men died. Well, that just goes to show that when you see many in the Scripture, it can often mean all, and all can often mean many. You have to be careful with the English there. I didn't actually go look in the Greek here. I'm just taking the NIV Study Bible's note 
They say, no, it means everybody, all men. Of course, that's what it means. You can't imagine a situation where a lot of people sin, but some people didn't. A lot of people died because of Adam's sin, but a lot of people didn't. Well, that's nonsense. So many means all here. Now, this establishes the doctrine of original sin. That phrase we use all the time is unfortunately not understood. It means that sin originates in Adam. It's not original as opposed to fake or original as opposed to a copy. It means Adam's sin originated in Adam and passed down to his descendants. And again, many people say, this is not fair. It's not fair. Well, life is not fair. I even saw a convicted killer on, on a Netflix documentary the other day said, hey, my life is a disaster and I'm on death row and I'm getting ready to die, but I'm not going to blame anybody else for it because life is not fair. I said, well, that's great. I mean, you hear a lot of people <laughs> moan and groan about how unfair life is, and here's a convicted killer a murderer getting ready to be executed saying that he's tired of hearing people say life is not fair. Well, life isn't fair. Any act of grace, anything of grace that happens in your life, it ain't fair that you got it and I didn't or that I got it and you didn't. And something bad, likewise, I can sit there and say, well, it's just not fair, God. You know, all these other Christians, nothing like that happens to them and happened to me. You, you take that route, you're heading down a bad dead end. I mean, think about it. Those who booked passage on the Titanic drowned. Was that Was that fair? There was absolutely no fault on their part. They bought a ticket, got on a boat, and drowned. Life is not fair. Every day that you have is by the grace of God. If you die, you die. And you're not going to be able to say, oh, gee, you know, it's not, it's not fair that I died prematurely. Life is not fair. Was it fair for Jesus to freely give you salvation when you didn't deserve it? That's not fair either. And once again, I'll repeat this. It wasn't, it wasn't only Adam's trespass that caused everybody's death. It wasn't only his sin that was imputed to everybody else that caused everybody's death. It wasn't only our sin nature that we inherited from Adam that caused everybody's death. Our actual sins caused everybody's death. I sinned. I sinned terribly because of what I inherited from Adam, but I did it voluntarily, and nobody forced me to do it. I know that I deserved hell. I had no doubt about it. And so do you, by the way. So did you before you accepted Christ. So we have one man's trespass, that's Adam, and then we got one man's gift. That would be Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross, the gift Jesus' free gift of his life, as Steve Ackerson says, the righteousness of Christ is the gift, as Gill says, salvation, as NIV Study Bible says, is all aspects of the same thing. So, one man gives death, one man gives gifts, gives the gift of life. Romans 5.16, and the gift is not like the one man's sin. The gift of righteousness, the gift of salvation, is not like Adam's sin, the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulted in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Now, I found this Paul's rhetoric here a little convoluted. I read an interesting comment in a commentary that said that Paul probably never even reviewed his his draft that he dictated to his amanuensis, the, his secretary, the guy that's writing down his book, and he's doing all, of this, all this first shot off the top of his head, which is amazing to me, because this is some really deep stuff. But sometimes I just wonder why he just gets a little bit convoluted in his rhetoric. And I don't, you know, I hate to criticize somebody who's had visions and who's writing inspired scripture. But sometimes, you know, it's a little bit hard to understand. Well, Peter said that. Peter said, you know, sometimes our brother Paul's scripture is hard to understand. Well, anyway, this is the way I'm going to put it. How is the gift not like the sin? How is Jesus' gift of salvation not like Adam's sin, which led to death? Well, here's the difference. One sin led to many transgressions. So we go from one to many. Many transgressions lead to one act of grace. So we go many to one. So from Adam to Jesus, we go from one sin to many sins. 
And then when Jesus comes, Jesus looks at all those many transgressions and he, and he does one act of grace. So we move in, when we look at Jesus, we move from many to one. One to many, from Adam to Jesus. One to many when it comes to sins. Many to one means many sins to one act of grace. You could say another contrast here when it's, the gift is not like the sin. It's actually a little bit easier to me if this, if this is what Paul meant. One sin brought judgment, whereas the gift brought justification. There's the big contrast right there. Sin, judgment, death, wrath, hell, gift, justification, sanctification, peace, righteousness, joy. Now, Paul says in verse 16 that this one sin that Adam did brought about judgment because from one sin came the judgment. Here's some options. The judgment was the sentence of death that was passed on Adam and his expulsion from paradise. From his one sin came the judgment on Adam. But most probably, I think it is, it's the judgment on the whole world, not just for Adam, but for all of mankind, as Steve Atkinson says, and I agree with that. We can tell that from the context, because one sin, from one sin came the judgment, and then later on in the verse, but from many trespasses came the gift. So you got the judgment. What is the judgment on? The many trespasses that, that followed on later. So that's probably what, he's, what Paul is talking about here. Not Adam's judgment coming from Adam's one sin, but judgment on the whole world coming from Adam's sin. Now this idea that salvation is a gift from many trespasses came the gift resulting in sanctification. We can read Romans 3.24. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's believers. are justified freely. That means they don't have to pay for it. It's free. They don't have to work for it. It's given to them. It's free by his grace, through God's grace, through the redemption that's being bought out of slavery by Jesus' blood price paid on the cross, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the gift, redemption, justification. Romans 5.17, since by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? One man's trespass, there's the doctrine of original sin, that's Adam's trespass. Now compare that with the heretical statement by the Mormon cult. This is in the Mormon article of faith number two. Quote, we believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgressions. No, you're going to be punished not only for your own sins, but for Adam's transgression. Adam is our federal head. Since by one man's trespass, death reigned. That means Adam's responsible for it. Now, note other ways to deny original sin. 19th, 19th century rationalists, in addition to Mormons, 19th century rationalists denied original sin. They knew if, if they could prove that Adam was a myth, Jesus would not be God. If, because if there was no first Adam causing sin, there would be no need for the second Adam to redeem us from sin. How about Darwinism? German higher criticism, they all, higher criticism, they all go to the point that mankind ain't a sinner. That's basically what it all boils down to, and that's why I just put all liberal horse crap in one big boiling pot of excrement and say, this is what liberalism does. It leads you to hell, because you don't know that you need a Savior because you think you're good. And all of that liberalism utterly contradicts what Paul teaches here in Romans. Now, the big contrast in Romans 5.17 is the contrast between death and life. In the first part of the verse, we see that death reigns. In the second part of the verse, we see life reigns. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So Adam's sin spread death all over the world, and death was king. It reigned. But now, because of the gift of grace, that's Jesus' redeeming and sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross, now... 
We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Reign in life. So now life reigns instead of death. Now, there's a future tense here that might bear looking at a little bit. Death reigned through that one man, through Adam. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace, the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? How much more will? That's the future reign of believers with Jesus Christ. Well, when did that reign start? I mean, isn't life reigning in my life now and your life now? Well, that goes to the old problem of already not yet. When is the kingdom? It's already here, but it's also not yet here. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. There's a future. We will reign him totally at the end. Revelation 22.5. Night will no longer exist and people will not need lamplight or sunlight because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Future kingdom, fulfillment of the, old co- of the new covenant, and so we will reign in life. However, I do think that reigning is current in the believer's life from the time that he gets born again. Now let's look at what John Gill says about will reign in life. They will triumph, Christians will triumph over it, over death, at the resurrection morn. They will rise again to everlasting life. They reign now in spiritual life over sin. There's, there's the present part I was trying to bring out. They reign now in spiritual life over sin, Satan, and the world, and they will reign in eternal life. They will sit on thrones, wear crowns, and possess a kingdom of glory forever and ever. So they reign now, and they reign in the future, in life. And death's reign is over. Regime change. Notice that us who will reign, those who receive the overflow of grace, no, it's an overflow, that's a lot. We will receive it. You don't get this grace, this life, unless you receive it. And it's not automatic. You've got to receive it for it to be effective. Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, Paul continues, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were, disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So when Paul says, so then, what he's doing is finishing the unfinished comparison of Romans 5:12, which I'm going to read right now, We're going to, and I'm going to leave out verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. So Romans 5:12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sin. Verse 12, verse 18, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's disobedience, obedience, excuse me, the many will be made righteous. Now you see that these verses are repeating each other. They're saying the same thing. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Why did Paul do that? Why did he repeat himself so much? Well, probably because this might be a hard truth to swallow. So Paul repeats it for emphasis and to avoid misunderstanding. And it is a hard truth to swallow. I remember when I was in high school. And I was presented through good Calvinist influences, the idea that Adam was our federal head and I suffered sin, I had sin imputed to me because of what Adam did, and my carnal self rebelled against that so bad. I said, it's just not fair. How can that be fair? You know, I don't have any trouble with it now, but back then I did. So it's a, it's a hard doctrine. Paul repeats it, so we'll be sure to know. Now let's look at this word, everyone. So then as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. Now, everyone is used twice there. 
Through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone. That means everyone individually with no exception. But then through one righteous act, that's through Jesus' death on the cross, there is life-giving justification for everyone, but there's an implied condition. Everyone who believes in Jesus, which is not everyone individually. So everybody gets condemned, but not everyone who gets saved. It's everyone who believes in Jesus. What this means is salvation is available to everyone. Everybody can, you know, has the, has the option to believe. They don't have the power to believe. They have to have the Holy Spirit to, to give them the power to believe. Irresistible grace and tulip. But the opportunity is there, and if they got free will, if the Armenians are right, they have the opportunity to to believe. But not everyone is going to believe, obviously. Otherwise, you'd have universal salvation, which is nonsense. Contradicts every word that Jesus talked about hell. There would be no need for hell. Now notice in verse 19, through the one man's obedience, through Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Why will? Why the future tense? Since the righteousness has already been given, there were people righteous when Paul was writing. Well, Paul, in my opinion, was probably referring to those who weren't saved yet when Paul was writing. Some were, but some weren't. And so Jesus is going to give righteousness to those in the elect who hadn't been born yet or who hadn't been saved yet. In verse 19, we notice that through Jesus' obedience, the one act of grace, through that many will be made righteous. Well, what does that term made righteous mean? That's the definition of justification or declared righteous or made righteous. It refers to one's legal standing before God, as the NIV Study Bible and John Gill say. Now, it does not, according to the NIV Study Bible, and I think they're right, it does not refer to being made righteous in character. In other words, sanctification. It's not talking about sanctification righteousness. It's talking about justification righteousness. Paul doesn't deal with sanctification until we get to chapter 6, 7, and 8, which is coming up shortly. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The significant word, twice rendered made, as in made righteous, does not signify to work a change upon a person or thing, but to constitute or ordain, as will be seen from all the places where it is used. So we will be ordained as righteous. It doesn't mean we actually change our character so that we are no longer a rotten sinner, but we are, we are constituted or ordained. We are declared righteous legally. God says, legally, you don't have to die. You still might be a piece of crap down there, and you're, you know, you still might be in the porn industry. But you accepted Christ to forgive you for your sins. Well, we got to get you out of the porn industry. You ain't sanctified yet, like you're gonna be. So Paul's not talking about sanctification. Yet. He's just talking about being made righteous, being made legally righteous here, in verse 19. We go to verses 20 and 21, and we'll finish up this audio. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law came along not to bring redemption, but to show the need for it. Remember, the law does two things. It shows you that you need Christ, you need forgiveness, and two, it provokes sin if you, in you if you try to keep it and can't keep it which you can't. So sin came along, excuse me, the law came along to multiply the trespass. Now, as I just said, multiply means what? The law multiplies two things. One, it multiplies the knowledge of sin in the believer, in the uh, non-believer, multiplies the knowledge of sin. And the second thing the law does, it multiplies the commission of sins. But of course, sin multiplied, 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 grace multiplied even more. So that means that Jesus' grace is bigger than all that condemnation the law does. Either the law of Moses or the law of nature. All right, talking about multiplying the knowledge of God by showing its stark contrast to the holiness of God. The law, excuse me, 
the law was holy and the law made sin even more sinful by showing sin's stark contrast to the holiness of God. Here's the scripture, Romans 3.20, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. The knowledge of sin comes through the law. There's knowledge. Romans 5.13, In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. But if there's a law, and there is, then you will have sin charged to your account. And then, then when that happens, then you will know that you have violated the law and that you have more knowledge that you're a lawbreaker. All right, so you get a multiplication of knowledge of, of your sin, as well as actual practice of sin, I believe, also. And that, of course, produces death. Sin reigns in death. So also grace will reign through righteousness, which, of course, comes from Jesus' death on the cross. And that results in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, life. And that's the whole thing, man. You know, getting born again gives you eternal life. That's the long and short of the, of the gospel message, eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So our summary for our audio here, verses five, verses 12 through 21 of Romans 5. One, I am a sinner because of Adam. Two, I will die not only because of my sin, but also because of Adam's sin. Three, in Adam I deserve death, judgment, and condemnation. Four, in Jesus I receive grace, life, and righteousness. Five, death is inevitable through Adam, and life is inevitable through Jesus. And on that happy note, ladies and gentlemen, we will finish this audio. We will finish, we have finished Romans chapter 5. We will take up Romans 6 in the next chapter and talk about, and talk about the old man being dead. How do we get sanctified? Talk a little bit about baptism. Talk about sanctification, how we can be slaves to righteousness. We'll see you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.